0: Place in the 110th Psalm. We'll be back there in a moment, but you might want to open to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look there uh, briefly. In fact, we're going to do a lot of looking around this morning, turning in different passages in the Bible. If you need one, there's a copy there nearby somewhere, and I'll try to announce some page numbers. It's good for you to do that, to know your way around your Bible. And while I'm Happy to put some things on the screen for you. Uh, It is good for you to look at your copy of the scriptures, and that will really be necessary for you this morning as we examine some very heartwarming and encouraging things about the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I do want to just make mention next week, I hope you'll you'll be back with us uh, even next uh, Lord's Day evening as we uh, look to ordain young man to the gospel ministry. That's not something that happens in everyday life in a congregation. And uh, it's uh, quite a a special event where uh, a body of believers uh, recognizes one's gifts and calling for ministry and is able to encourage uh, young men that way and affirm that in a special kind of ceremony. And so... Of course, there's a number of things going on next weekend. Saturday's the examination, 9.30. It'll happen right here in this room, the ordaining council, And then um, next Lord's Day morning, I'll make mention of that as uh, we study the Scripture together. And uh, next Lord's Day evening, Lord willing, we'll have that kind of special service at 6 p.m. So I just encourage you to be a part of that. I know it would be a delight to you. Well, today I do want to continue a series that we've been looking at since the month of February regarding highlights in the life of Christ. Most may have assumed that that would kind of conclude around Easter with that great day of celebration, but there's much more to examine concerning the life of our Lord. He is alive today. But that begs the question, where is Jesus now? speaking to someone recently in fact it was last week in the lobby and he was conveying to me that he was in a different assembly for a while and kind of a young believer and that was just a question that naturally came to his mind where is Jesus now and he began asking people in that assembly where is Jesus and he told me you wouldn't believe the kind of answers that I got about where he is he said some just said well I I don't know he's kind of in all of us and And uh, he said that was kind of disturbing to him as as a young believer. And I want to make sure that we, as God's people, we know the answer to that question. Where is Jesus right now? Well, Acts chapter 2 exactly tells us where Jesus is right now. If you look at Acts 2, and notice verse 32, this is Peter preaching in Jerusalem. And notice what he says in verse 32. Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What's he referring to? The resurrection of Christ. But notice he doesn't end there. Verse 32, he says this, or verse 33, being therefore exalted where? Where? At the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out, and you yourselves are seeing and hearing it. Where is Jesus now? Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. You know, there's a technical name for this. People refer to this as the session of christ s-e-s-s-i-o-n the session of christ you say well that sounds kind of odd well session really is is an old word that refers to be seated that's what it means sitting down to be seated and so older writers often would refer to jesus right now in his session he is seated at the right hand of the father well that kind of brings to us another question What's he doing there? Why is that significant? What's he going on? Is he just observing? What's taking place right now? And the answer to that question is actually found in what we read this morning in the 110th Psalm. If you'll look there with me, please. What is he doing now is an important question because it has to do with what was revealed by God a thousand years before Jesus ever lived. And this is also foundational to your view of Jesus Christ. What do you think he's doing now? Well, what you imagine him to be doing very much dictates your relationship to him and how you perceive him now. When you turn to the 110th Psalm, it's a very significant psalm. Everything in the Bible is significant. The only reason I mention that is because this is the most oft-quoted psalm in the New Testament. In fact, 24 times Psalm 110 is quoted or referred to in your New Testament. So this is a psalm that your New Testament writers continually went back to in order to understand what was going on in their current context. About Half of those 24 quotations or allusions are found in the book of Hebrews, and we're going to look at two of those this morning in great detail. So what is this psalm? Why is it so significant that New Testament writers keep going back to it? What's it describing? What's it talking about? Well, the psalm is broken down very simply into the first four verses and the last three verses. I'll just note the last three verses, beginning in verse 5 and running through verse 7, That's referring to things future that will yet be, even in our future. It talks about the Lord being at the right hand, and he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. I don't want to go into great detail. We noted this when we studied the book of the Revelation together that the day of wrath is a day yet to come. And you can see that even in this context, it talks about in verse 5 He will do things. In verse 6, He will execute judgment. In verse 6, again, he will shatter kings. In verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way. And it's talking about things that will happen, even in our future. But our concern this morning is with the first four verses of the psalm, because they speak of things that are currently taking place now. And what are those things? Well, the first verse says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit, where? At my right hand. Remember, where is Jesus now? He's seated at the right hand of God. This is a prophecy of that. And what is he doing? Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now, who holds a scepter? Do you know what a scepter is? It's like a stick maybe with a little ornate thing on the end of it. But when you think of scepter, who holds a scepter? A king. That's exactly what it's referred to because look at the last line of verse 2. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the Lord being seated at the right hand right now has something to do with his position as a king. He rules. Psalm 110 in the first three verses speak of the coronation of a king seated in authority at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing now? He is ruling. And if you want more detail about that, if the Lord tarries, you'll have to come back next week, and we'll look more specifically at this idea of Christ's rule. But my focus this morning is verse 4, because here's what else it says about this one seated at the right hand. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn to this one seated at the right hand and will not change his mind, You are a what? A priest. And you're a forever kind of priest. After this kind of order, one named Melchizedek. Jesus is ruling and Jesus is also interceding. He is seated on the right hand of God interceding as a high priest for his people. So this morning, I want to speak to you on the session of Christ, his being seated at the right hand of God, and what exactly that means. What we'll discover is this. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, interceding as our perfect priest. Let's pray together and ask God to really grasp this and understand this this morning. Lord, would you help us in the moments that we have to focus our attention on where Jesus is, what he is doing, why it's so important, and would it comfort our heart today? But we ask this in the name of our perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Did you know that nearly every religion has its priesthood? Those religions that are false, that don't believe in the one true God, even they have a sense of priesthood, the need for an intercessor. Why is that? Well, because guilt is universal. Humanity senses this estrangement from a creator? Why do people have a conscience and that conscience sometimes plagues them? It's this idea of guilt that is universal. It's built into us. We understand that about ourselves. Because of that, atonement is vital. How do I atone for this guilt? I'm aware of my fallenness. I'm aware of my straying. How will it ever be forgiven? How is atonement made? And because of that, a priest is essential. A priest who can take hold of God, as it were, and yet grasp the hand of fallen humanity, as it were, and bring them together. How does this happen? How does a priest do this? What kind of priest can do this? Just anyone who claims the title? This morning, I want us to note that Jesus Christ is that perfect priest, and he alone. Why is this the case? I want us to note, first of all, that Jesus is our perfect priest by a divine oath. By something that God has said about this. Look with me again at the text in Psalm 110 and verse 4. Who are the people speaking in this psalm? The fourth verse says, you are a priest. Okay, who is the you receiving this instruction and who is the one giving it? For that, look at the first verse in the psalm. We read this in verse 1, the Lord says to my lord now you have lord twice in that verse and you think well that might be confusing is this somebody talking to themselves but actually in the hebrew there are two different words or terms translated as lord our english version if you have a good english version uh, this the english standard version does this helps us to distinguish this what do you know about the difference between those two words lord and the first line of verse one one is in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The other one is a capital L and then lowercase letters. And what the translators are trying to do is tip you off that these are different terms. The term capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D translates the Hebrew term Yahweh. That's the term by which God said, I will be identified to my people. I am who I am, the Yahweh, the eternal God. This is often referenced to God as he is and his full deity, the divine father as it is. The second term in the first line is the Hebrew term Adon. Sometimes maybe you've heard of the term Adonai. That's this term. And what that means is master or ruler. It's someone that has a rightful place of rule. So what the psalm is saying is this, you have Yahweh, the eternal God, saying to the rightful master. And that's the conversation going on in this psalm. Who is this master, the little O-R-D in the first line? Well, we've noted that he is a ruler according to verse 2, but where does he rule from according to verse 2? It says Zion. It's a ruler in Zion. Now, what is Zion? Zion is another word for Jerusalem. In other words, this is a ruler of Israel. And you might think, okay, it is the Lord Yahweh, and he's speaking to the ruler of Israel, that human ruler. Maybe it's it's perhaps the most well-known king of Israel, who would be David. But... Look again at the first line. The Lord says to my Lord. Who's writing this? King David is writing this psalm. And he says, I'm as it were a fly on the wall. And I'm hearing a conversation between Yahweh. And he's saying things to my master. My Lord. What's he talking about? What we're discovering in the 110th psalm is this, is that you have an identification of somebody in this psalm. It's the identity of the one receiving this oath, and the identity of that personage is none other than the Messiah. It is the ultimate God-appointed ruler over all things, Christ, as we say in the New Testament, the Messiah. You have God the Father, speaking to God the Son we know of from the scripture the Messiah and here's what he's saying to him sit at my right hand that's where he is right now and what are you to do well this is the identification of the one making the or, or receiving the oath rather is the Messiah but I'm also interested in this who is the one making this oath We've noted that it is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But why is that important? And for that, I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 5. Hold your hand in Psalm 110. We're going to go back there. But he's making this oath. And what is the oath according to verse 4? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord Yahweh is saying this to the Adon, the master. You are a priest. Why is that important? Hebrews chapter 5, it's on page 943 in your chair Bible there. Let me just walk you through this passage. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed. And they are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The writer of Hebrews basically summarizes the book of Leviticus in chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 5. He says God appointed priests, and those priests were to offer sacrifices, and they did this according to God's appointment. Now, what was the nature of these priests? Look down in verse 4. He says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Here's the point he's making nobody just wakes up one morning and says, I think I'll be a priest. This was something that God Himself ordained. In fact, He designated a particular man named Aaron, and from him, All the priests would come. And this is the only authoritative appointed priesthood ever. It's that God appointed Aaron. And his descendants would serve in this capacity as priest. This was a chosen priesthood by God. Yet, look at verse 5. So also Messiah, the Christ, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was what? He was what? He was appointed. Even this ultimate high priest did not exalt himself to that, but he himself was appointed by God. And how do we know that? Look at what the writer does. He quotes two Old Testament passages. In verse 5, he says, it was said, and now he's quoting from Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but that's the passage where God speaks of setting his king on Zion. And he says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. It doesn't mean that he began his existence. It's referring to his resurrection. And basically what the author of Hebrews is doing this, he's saying Jesus was appointed priest, And he's a better priest because he's not just a son of Aaron. He's the son of God. He has that connection. So he's appointed by God. And in verse 6, notice this. He also says in another place, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Where was that from? Psalm 110, we were just looking at that that verse. And therefore, if you look down in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter five, it says, being designated by God a high priest. Here's the whole point the writer of Hebrews is making. Jesus Christ, just like every other priest before him that was designated by God, was designated by God as a high priest. He didn't take that to himself, God gave it to him. God ordained him to that. You say, well, Matt, why are you talking about that? Why does that seem so important? Well, because again, I need to mention to you, nobody just takes this office and this responsibility to themselves. It's actually very much guarded by God. Let me show you the importance of this. Look in your Bible in Numbers 16. Because there actually was a group of people that decided they wanted to be priests like Aaron. And they took it upon themselves to do so. Numbers chapter 16. It's in your Old Testament. Fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 16. And let's just read a little story about how serious God takes this idea of being designated by him as a priest. Look at verse 1. We're introduced to Korah. Now, Korah was a descendant of Levi. And by the way, the priests came from the tribe of Levi. Uh, Aaron was a descendant of Levi. But notice it says in verse 1 of number 16, Now Korah, the son of Izahar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men, Verse 2, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. Verse 3, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And here's what they're questioning. Only Aaron and his descendants served as priest in the things of the tabernacle as far as going in and making the sacrifice. And only the high priest once a year went behind the veil to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And Kohath, the descendant of Levi, and his followers come up and say, how come how come it's only Aaron? In fact, how come only Moses gets to go in the tent of meeting with God? Are we not all holy? I think we should be able to do that. I think that should be our privilege. So look at verse 8. And Moses said to Korah, hear now you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. And then he has brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. What he's saying is, your Levites, it was their job to handle the things of the tabernacle. Whenever that would move in the wilderness, they would handle those things. They would handle all the, the uh, trays and all the the offerings or, or all the uh, the, the the furniture of the tabernacle and all of that entailed and and they were chosen to do that. But they didn't have the responsibility of Aaron and his family who actually performed the sacrifices. That's why he says this last question at the end of verse 10. Would you seek the priesthood also? I mean, God has given you some privilege in order to handle the things of the Lord regularly, but you want more. You want the priesthood. And so what happened to this group? Well, look at verse thirty two. <clears throat> After a time of testing, we're told in verse thirty two that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Would you say that's a sobering response? Okay, who did that? God did that. Why? Because God is the only one that appoints priests. And you don't just waltz into that responsibility. That's something exclusively given by God. So who is the one making the oath in Psalm 110? You are a priest. It is God himself that is stating this. Of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That makes it an appropriate appointment. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is making clear. Now, there's a final thing I want to see about this oath. Go back to Psalm 110. Notice with me the nature of this oath. Psalm 110, verse 4. Look how it reads. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Okay, if you're going to say something like that, whatever comes next you're going to think is really, really important, right? If you say, I promise you this, I'll never change my mind. What are you saying? Listen to me. You can take this to the bank. This is absolutely settled. And what is absolutely settled? God will not change his mind about this, that the Messiah is a priest for how long? Forever. You can look in the Old Testament and you can read about priests, starting with Aaron and how they eventually died. In fact, there's some 70 priest's name between Aaron and Caiaphas in the New Testament. But this priest, you can take this to the bank. He's one forever. And that's the significance of the nature of this oath. It's unbreakable. This is something God will absolutely do and won't change his mind. Now, let me just set the stage for our next point because why is God making such an adamant point and this seems so highly unusual? It's because of what we've already read in this psalm. The first three verses talk about Jesus seated at the right hand of God and there he is what? The king, the ruler. And now you come to the fourth verse, and it talks about this Messiah by an oath, and he's now a priest, the intercessor. But did you know under the law of Moses, those two things never mixed? You never had an individual serving as king at the same time as priest. In fact, I don't have time to take you there this morning, but you might want to write down 2 Chronicles 26. There was one time where a king tried this. His name was Uzziah, and Uzziah was the king of Israel, the king of God's people, and Uzziah decided, you know what, I'm a pretty important person as king. I think I should be able to do what the priests do as well, and he took incense, and he was going to offer it on the altar of incense in the tabernacle, and the temple. He went there and did that, and do you remember the story? Do you remember God's response? He was smitten with leprosy. And God judged him for mixing those offices. There's king, there's priest, but there's no mixing. Ah, but you come to the 110th Psalm, and now suddenly you have the one who is ruling from the right hand as king, but he's also the priest. And yet God says, but make no mistake, I have sworn this, it will happen. And of course, who's he referring to? It's the Lord Jesus Christ that will combine those two offices in his person. Well, how is this possible? Well, I want you to go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Jesus is our perfect priest by divine oath. That's what we're reading in the 110th Psalm, and the writer of Hebrews makes clear. But Jesus is also our perfect priest by a divine order. And this is very, very important. What do I mean by that? Look at Hebrews 5 again. We're told this in verse 10. The writer says that Jesus was designated by God a high priest. That's his emphasis. Only God designates a priest and Jesus is it. But his designation is after the order of who? After the order of who? Melchizedek. That's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Melchizedek. You ever heard of that guy? Well, the writer of Hebrews is going to go on and elaborate about this unique individual. Look at verse 20 of chapter 6 in Hebrews. Hebrews 6.20. He says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, speaking of heaven, having become a high priest forever after the order of who? Melchizedek. Why does he keep talking about this guy Melchizedek? I thought priests came from Aaron. Well, look at verse 11 of chapter 7 in Hebrews. He says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Who's that? That's Aaron's priesthood, descendant of Levi. For under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of, say it, Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of? Oh, that's very helpful. How is that helpful? Well, when you talk about priests, I thought there was only one, the order of Aaron. All priests come from Aaron. God made that clear, and he actually judged people who thought differently in the book of Numbers. But the writer of Hebrews says there's another order of priests. And they come after who? Melchizedek. It's the identity of a different order of priests. Well, who is Melchizedek? His name is used 10 times in the scripture. Believe it or not, it's used only twice in the Old Testament. And we saw one of those places. Where was that? Psalm 110, his name is used eight times in Hebrews. So Hebrews is the divine commentary on this mysterious figure in the Old Testament. Do you know where it is the first place we read about Melchizedek? It's all the way back in the first book of your Bible, in the book of Genesis. And so I want you to go there. Look at Genesis chapter 14. here's what we learn about this figure. It's it's the the time of the patriarchs. Abraham is in the land of promise that God has given him. And Abraham is living in the land. He's looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. During this time, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is taken captive by a marauding band of of rival kings in the area, which was very common in that day. And they, they take him captive in all of his household. And Abraham gathers his company together, a group of men, to go and rescue his nephew Lot. And he does, and he rescues him from the hands of these marauders. But when Abraham is coming back into the land of promise, we read this. Look at Genesis fifteen and, or 14 and verse 17. After his, that's Abraham's return from the defeat of Ketolayomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was, what? Priest of God Most High. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? You have a guy named Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. You know what that is? We put three letters on the front of that today. Jerusalem which means city of peace. This is saying Melchizedek is the king of peace, that place. And he comes out to Abraham, who's coming back with with these captives that he's taken in in war and, and redeemed, but it says he was a priest. So what offices does he hold? King and priest. By the way, I find it interesting that the first use of the term priest in your Bible is right there in verse 18 of Genesis 14. And the first time it's used is not of the Aaronic priesthood, but of Melchizedek. And here's what's really important. This priest, Melchizedek, who is also king, he predates Aaron, right? He came first. And then later was this Aaronic priesthood to the line of Aaron and Levi. And that's what the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to capitalize on. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 7. We've looked at chapter 5. Now he's going to fill out his argument here in chapter 7 about this priestly order. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 1. For this... Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed them. We just read that. And to him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And that's just simply a translation of his name. The the Hebrew word for king is, is Melech. And the word for righteousness is Tzedek. And so you have Melchizedek, and that's king of righteousness. And it's saying that's just what his name is. But notice verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What do you think about that? You might read that and say, this is some kind of mysterious superhuman individual. No father or mother? No beginning of days or end of life? And some people, because of that, have said that really what's going on here with Melchizedek, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. That could be, I don't think so. Here's why. Look at verse 4. See how great this what? Okay, what does the writer of Hebrews think of Melchizedek? What was he? He was a man. So then why does he say he doesn't have father or mother or genealogy? The point is this. Remember we read in Genesis 14, and you're like reading the story, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, Melchizedek, the priest, And he blesses Abraham, and just as quickly, boom, he's off the scene, and you never hear again about him until Psalm 110. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, okay, in that historical narrative, just like he comes on the scene, he's a priest, and if you're a priest, it's very, very important your genealogy. Why? Because all priests come from Aaron, and they're appointed by God. The writer says, ah, but there was a priest who wasn't from Aaron. He predated Aaron. And it's like he comes on the scene. We don't know who his father and mother are. There's no list of genealogy given. He's just on the scene. And then he passes off the scene. And he says in verse 3, this king, the end of verse 3, resembling the son of God, he continues as a priest forever. The resemblance to the Son of God rests upon the way he's depicted in the historical record. Just like you read about Melchizedek having no beginning or no ending, so the Son of God is his point. you see that? Now, notice his further argument. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness Of Melchizedek. Who has become a priest. Not on the basis of a legal requirement. Concerning bodily descent. Who would that be? Priest of Aaron. But he's priest. By the power of a what? Indestructible life. How did Jesus demonstrate. He has a power of an indestructible life. How did he demonstrate that? They tried to kill him. And he kept telling them, three days later, I'm going to walk out of that tomb. And you can't take his life. And he says, this is the kind of priest we have. He's ever living. He doesn't die off. And so let's have the next guy come in and fill his place. He's priest forever because he ever lives. You can't take that life. So look down at verse 23, Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number. I mentioned there was over 70 from Aaron to Caiaphas because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They died. They couldn't serve as priests after they died. Verse 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he, what? Continues forever. I'm behind on the slides. The identity of the order of Christ's priesthood is he's from Melchizedek. The nature of the order is that his priesthood is forever. Jesus is an eternal high priest. Do you see that? That's why we sing... He ever lives above for me to intercede. We should probably sing that again. You would notice it more And Arise, My Soul, Arise. Wesley's picking up on great doctrine in Hebrews. But the big question is this. We've seen now... That Jesus is seated at the right hand. He's interceding as our priest. He's there by appointment, by an oath. He's there in the proper order by the rule of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek. So what? I mean, that's a lot of great teaching about the Bible. I can't wait to get online and shoot that to my friends. So what? Well, let the Bible make the application. Look at Hebrews 7 and verse 25. What's the first word? Okay, as a consequence of everything I've told you about Jesus, he's there by divine order, he's seated at the right hand, he's there as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. as a consequence of all that, here's what's true about you. He, Jesus, is able to save how? To the uttermost. What it's saying is, Jesus is the priest that all those other priests of Aaron were pointing to. This is the one we've all been waiting for. And now he can save and forgive to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession. This is the greatest high priest. And it's your high priest. If you've drawn near to God through him. Through faith in him. Beloved, do you realize that that's why when you come here into this church today. We have no priest. I'm not a priest. We have no altars. We have no incense. We have no robes. We have no ceremony. We have none of the trappings of what we consider a priesthood. No chalices, no sacrifice. Does that mean we despise the idea of atonement and sacrifice necessary for God? Not at all. We elevate it because we know there's only one high priest and it would be a slap in his face to claim there are others. He is the great high priest. And we come to him, we come to God through him by faith. And he speaks to us from God through his word. And we enjoy his ever-living intercession for us. We have this eternal high priest. It doesn't, we don't need to depend on any other intercessor. Not Mary, not any saints. It's Jesus only. That's why the writer says this, verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Jesus doesn't offer sacrifices all the time. Why? Because first for his own sins, this old priest did, and then for those of the people, but Jesus offered one sacrifice once for all time. What was that sacrifice? It was himself. All those sacrifices pointed to Jesus. His was the ultimate sacrifice. And he, as a priest, would offer his own life for the forgiveness of sin. And because that has happened, there are no more priests. And there are no more sacrifices. And Jesus doesn't need to be sacrificed again all the time in a mass. He is the one and only one-time sacrifice sufficient for all who believe our great forever high priest. We ordain pastors, but we do not ordain priests because of the teaching of these verses. Now, is Jesus Christ your high priest? The Bible says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus, have you ever come to place your full reliance and confidence in Jesus Christ alone and his sacrifice for you? That's the only way to God. He's the only one appointed by God. He's of the right order from God. You must come through him. Finally, this note of application. Look back at Hebrews chapter 4. Notice how he began all of this section. This will be quick, I promise. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 14. Okay, believer, you're here. You know God. You've come to faith in Christ. You've embraced him as your great high priest, your only hope for sacrifice and forgiveness of sin. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us do what? Hold fast our confession. What he's saying is, why would you look anywhere else for forgiveness? Why would you try to please God by picking yourself up by your bootstraps and doing your best? Why would you go back to some other means by which you can be accepted with God? You have a great high priest. He's the only one. Hold fast to him. That's exactly what these Hebrews were tempted to do, to go back to religious ceremony, maybe because it felt religious, it made them feel good. And he says, don't do it. You have everything you need. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is Unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Jesus has walked in our shoes. He knows the temptations. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that even after we come to faith in Christ, we fail him. He understands that. Verse 16, but let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence you can come to God even in your greatest hour of sin. Why? Because we have a great high priest and we will receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. So, believer, you have a sympathetic high priest, he knows your weakness, he pleads your case. Quit trying to atone for your sin by just trying to feel really, really bad about them or doing some kind of penance. You can't do enough. Jesus has paid it all. Go to your priest. Go to Christ. and Find forgiveness in him. This is our great,